You can keep that open in front of you. If a couple of new faces here tonight, we're a bit of a BYO Bible kind of church, so um, maybe next time you bring your Bible or you can pull it up on your phone if you've got a phone there with you. It's, in, it's important to be able to see the text and not just stare at the preacher if you possibly can. Um, we're going to be looking at a fair bit of... And there's some Bibles up the back if you want them. Um, I, I want to kick off by just um, talking... Oh, my name's Tim, by the way. Um, Many of you know that. Um, I want to kick off by talking about baptisms just briefly and then tie it into where we're heading tonight. So um, with each of the people who got baptised, we, we've got a quote from them or a, a way of summar- attempting to summarise a line from their testimonies that they gave down there by the water. So Mel, are you able to um, grab those pictures? Oh, you did it. Good stuff. So there's Cooper. Um, he talked about joy. Lasting joy can only be found in Jesus. Amen to that one, mate. Um, yeah, yeah, good on your coops. Um, next one, um, here's, here's Michaela. So, no place too deep or despairing, he's still there. That's gold, isn't it? And then we've got one there for Libby, I think. I know now that God really is who he says he is. These are just little snippets of um, what kind of came out of people's mouths um, just before we baptise them. Um, I, love, I love when we get to hear the testimonies. Um, and, and, and I want you to know this. Th- there are very real and deep things going on in the hearts of people in this church. And that's just a little snippet of it. Um, I trust that there's something going on in your heart as well. Because th- there's nothing more important than your spirit and your soul coming alive to Jesus and growing deeper in him Is that happening for you right now? Because this is the most important thing to have happen in in our lives. And as we dive into Jesus' word just now, I pray that he will be doing a work in you and on you and through you. Um, And and this is what we welcome as we come together tonight. Um, Even though each of the people getting baptised had something different to say, I, I thought that I spotted a pretty common theme um, with all of them, actually. And here's, here's how I would say the common theme was this. Um, they all testified how, how they've come to really know and trust in God through hard times. Each of them have had something particularly heavy go down recently or over the last year or so. And for them, that was the very thing that in the midst of it, they came to know God and trust in God in a deeper way. And that is so true, isn't it? I mean, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while now, you'll probably be able to testify to particular moments of deep growth and change that's happened for you. And there's probably a connection between that moment, that season, and something heavy that was going down where you needed to cry out for help or you needed to actually really trust and you needed to develop your faith in God. And that was a big growing moment for you. Um, The truth is... Hardship or distress in your life um, will either make or break you insofar as your faith goes. Um, It can break you. You, you, It can be that you go through the kind of time as a Christian um, that's so difficult and, and you're so beaten up by it that you find yourself turning against God and, and, and actually accusing him of not being good or accusing him of not being in control. They're the two things you can do and you can find yourself running from him um, and and it breaks your faith, hardship. 
Um, But likewise, the same kind of hardship or even a deeper level hardship can do the very opposite. If in the midst of it, instead of running from him and accusing him, you step towards him, you lean into him, you learn to trust him, you try to hang off who he says he is and experience him, it can be the very moment where you grow. But one thing's for sure, moments of hardship and distress make or break. In fact, what they do is kind of reveal or expose where you're really at. So we always want to ask these big questions when we gather. Where are you really at in regards to your attitude towards God, your attitude towards his people? What's happening for you in those deeper places? And I ask that question because as we, die, as we keep working our way through the book of Mark, you see the followers of Jesus, his disciples, Um, often finding themselves in these hard, distressful kind of situations. And it's in those very moments um, that that what is revealed is where they're really at. What is exposed is, is what they really think about Jesus or what's kind of missing in their thinking about Jesus and their doubts about Jesus. It all gets exposed in the hardship and in the distress. And I want to start this evening with, with the situation with Jesus walking on water, and then we'll move back to the loaves and the feeding of the 5,000, all right? So, so come with me to that last part of chapter 6, and we're going to kick off there at verse 45. And um, even if you're really new to Christianity, you will have heard about this story of Jesus walking on the water. It's one of the classic things people know Jesus for. He's the dude who walked on the water. Well, here's the incident. Here's the event. So come in and notice the details with me here. Verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go out ahead of him towards Poseidon. Now they're going to get themselves into a bit of trouble on the lake. And I want you to notice right up front, it wasn't because they were being disobedient to Jesus, doing the wrong thing. They were listening to Jesus. They were obeying him and they found themselves in a really gnarly situation. Jesus told them to go out ahead of him. He didn't go with them in the boat. Um, while he dismissed the crowd. Um, After leaving them, here's what Jesus did. He went up on the mountainside to pray. So just keep hearing it, people. Just keep hearing Jesus' pattern and his rhythm. He, He sneaks off. He peels away for time on his own with the Lord, and he does it constantly. He loves the mountainside. Apparently, that's the place where there's good reception with the Father. So you go up on the mountainside and he prays. And and you see it repeated all the way through Mark's gospel. This was Jesus' pattern. And if it's good enough for Jesus, and if Jesus needs it, wow, you and I need it. Do you peel away? Do you get your time? Do you want to be with your Father? Do, Do you pray to him? Do you have time just with him? And here's one of the most amazing things about being a Christian is um, you might be the kind of person who's scared about being on your own. You don't like being alone. If, if you are in Christ and God's spirit lives in you, there's no such thing as being alone. In fact, get off on your own so you can have time alone with your heavenly father. See how Jesus does it time and time again. It's just something to notice on the way through. Verse 47, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Have you ever attempted to row a boat 
just full stop. <laughs> they have attempted to row a boat. They're really hard. You realize how uncoordinated you are. In fact, my dad talks about this time when we were young, and I'm one of five kids, and he reckons this is the moment that broke his back, or, or didn't break his back, but did his back in so that he could whinge about having a bad back for the rest of his life. And we were involved, apparently. You know, it was a holiday moment. We were renting a boat to row, and dad was out there with, I think, all of the kids. So we're all these little kids in the boat. And, um, but the tide changes and the wind picks up and all of a sudden he is straining on the oars all on his own, trying to have a real man moment and rescue his kids. And apparently it got really gnarly for him. He was really worried about what was going to happen. But somehow he managed to get the boat safely to somewhere, but he had to strain so hard it totally put his back out. Um, and he's been whinging about it ever since, all right? Um, and so, you know, we caused that, you know. But he saved us. I'm so proud of him. Um, but here's, here's, the, here's the disciples straining on the oars, going against the wind in another scary, frightening situation. Uh, it, it's almost similar to the one back in chapter 4. We looked at it last week, yeah, where the disciples, Jesus is in the boat, but they're on the lake and there's a storm and there's wind. Jesus is sleeping. They're all freaking out. It's, it's similar to that. Um, but what does Jesus do here? He, what does he say? Um, verse, uh, where are we? The disciples are straining on the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he, that's Jesus, went out to them, walking on the lake. Okay, just stop there for a minute. Jesus walks on the lake. Now, you might have seen a magician or an illusionist do this or a video of it. Um, you know, was this just a magic trick that Jesus was doing or was it just the disciples hallucinating? No, no, Jesus walked on the water out to where the fellas were. He actually did this. If you are a Bible-believing Christian, you're going to have these moments where you go, okay, all right, Jesus walked on the water. And if you sit back from that a little bit, logically... Why wouldn't he? Why couldn't he? I mean, if Jesus really is God the Son and he was there in the beginning when everything was being made, in fact, everything was made through him and for him, then if he's the one who made the water, then surely he's the one who can walk on the water? Of course he can. So he walks on the water. It's not a magic trick. He actually walks out on the water to them. And you're kind of anticipating that he's going to go out to them to help them. But look at this little sentence that says there. He, he was about to pass them by. <laughs> now, that is an intriguing sentence. I, I actually think this is one of the most, one of the real intriguing sentences that I don't know what to do with, to, to be honest with you. I've, I've read a lot and I've thought a lot about it. And I think there's lots of different ideas or explanations about Jesus. He, was he really just going to walk right past them? Um, all of the ideas, I think one of them stands out to be his most reasonable, but even that I'm not convinced of. So I'm just going to go out there and say, I don't know what, he, I don't know what that means. I don't know why he would be walking past them. But anyway, apparently he was just going to walk on by. We'll, we'll move on, okay? You don't, you don't have to know everything about it. Um, verse 49, But when they saw him walking on the, water, on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they saw him and they were terrified. So here they are in a situation. They see Jesus, but they come to the conclusion he must be a ghost. And, and they cry out terrified. So, so Jesus comes into the situation with them. He's there. 
but they're still terrified. His presence doesn't actually change anything for them. It even freaks them out more. Like when Jesus was in the boat with them in the storm, Jesus actually calmed the storm when they're on the boat, and then they were still terrified of him. They're like, who is this guy? So his presence doesn't calm them down. They're still freaking out. Immediately he spoke to them and he said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down again. In Matthew's account of this, you get the extra detail of Peter saying, hey, can I come out and walk on the water too? And Jesus goes, okay then, come on, have a walk with me. Peter gets to have a little walk, but then he starts to sink. It's, 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 almost, it's, it's funny. Um, Jesus pulls him out. You don't get that here in Mark, so we won't. Get into the detail of that. We'll stick with what Mark's got for us here. But look what he says. He climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. So, so they're still shocked, baffled, terrified. They're not calm and um, confident and secure that Jesus is with them. They're still freaking out. And look at what it says next in verse 52. For they had not understand about the uh, for they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hard. So we're told here the reason why the disciples are still freaking out, even though Jesus is with them and he's calmed down the wind, is because there's something they didn't understand about the loaves, the, the feeding of the five thousand event. That they still hadn't quite got the meaning of that, and their hearts were hardened. So there was something missing in their heads and their minds, and there's something missing in their hearts. There's actually seems to be something in them that's resisting Jesus and is hard towards Jesus, hard towards accepting him, and there's something they didn't get. And just on the way through, I want to notice this with you. Behind a lack of understanding, often, more often than not, lurks a hard heart. For all of us. There's a a head-heart connection going on for you. And and if there's things you're yet to understand, have you considered whether there's something hard in your heart towards Jesus in regards to that? And that's what's holding you back from being able to understand it. In fact, if you're someone who's actually spent years going, oh, you know, I just don't really get it. Everyone else around me seems to get it and nod their heads and go, wow, isn't that great? And I kind of nod and pretend like I do. But really, I'm still confused and I don't understand, and I don't really get to celebrate the depths, and and, and I don't think I've grown deeper in my understanding over the years. Have you considered that it's not just a head issue? It's not just that you need to be smarter and work harder to figure it out. Have you considered that it could be very well a heart issue for you, that there's a stubbornness in you or a hardness in you towards Jesus, and, and that's where the problem is? And and that's what needs to change first. Ultimately, Christianity is a work of the heart. You know, some will just turn it into an intellectual exercise, I know. It's important that we apply our minds. But at the very centre of what we're doing here is we're having soft hearts towards God. We're letting him change us from the inside out. We're trying not to be resistant towards him. And it all begins in the heart. It all begins as God by his spirit comes to give you new birth in the heart. Yeah? And and, and open you up from the inside and help you see and understand and believe. Head, heart, connection. 
Could you even consider whether you, in these moments when we gather for the proclaiming of the word, um, and, and, and when you gather with other Christians midweek, and when you open your Bible on your own at home, can you consider what the posture of your heart is? Can, can, you, can you consider whether there needs to be some softening somehow and what you can do to position yourself and humble yourself and open yourself up day after day to Jesus so, so that you don't just, as the years tick by, learn a couple more nifty things about him, but as the years tick by, you actually come to experience him and know him deeply and love him more and delight in him in a very real and authentic way, a way that you, you see others who look like they're doing that, but it's not happening for you. Can you position yourself? Can you do all that you can with the strength you're given to humble yourself by the power of the Spirit to be open to Jesus so you grow deeper in your understanding? Could could that happen for you now? Can it happen for you every week? Can it happen for you every day? So do you understand what they were meant to get about the loaves? Because apparently there was something they didn't understand about the loaves. Do you understand about the loaves? Because it's, it's an intriguing little sentence. They, they didn't really get it. I, I want to give to you what I think it is and then show you in the passage why I think that's the case. I think what they were meant to understand about the whole feeding of the 5,000 is this about Jesus, that he is their shepherd. Now, it's not explicitly obvious. It's subtle, but I think that's what they were meant to get. Come with me and have a, have a look at the incident of the feeding of the 5,000 and See if you think that's what they're meant to get as well. Um, verse 34, you get the language of shepherd and sheep, which is where the concept of introduced, and I think the way that Mark tells this event, he wants us to catch this about Jesus. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Just catch that for a minute. There's this crowd that just keep following Jesus. In fact, they're following him in this moment in a panicky way. That They hear about where he's heading and they're running to that location. It's like there's a desperation in them. They're lost, they're confused, they're running, they're panicking and they're crowding and they're bringing their sick and they're just trying to get to Jesus. And as Jesus sees this crowd that are in a real flap, he has compassion on them. And what he sees is sheep without a shepherd. People who need leading and caring for and protecting, but they're just loose and they're confused and they're panicking. And Jesus says, this is sheep without a shepherd. Now, the concept of sheep and shepherd is something you can get your head around pretty easily, can't you? Um, you know, a shepherd is someone who actually cares for and protects sheep. Um, sheep um, feel calm and safe and secure in the presence of a, of a good shepherd. That's the idea. Um, in fact, a good shepherd will enable his sheep to even be able to rest in his presence. They'll be able to lie down. 
because they'll just feel safe under the leadership and the protection of their shepherd. But when Jesus looks at these people, he sees them without a shepherd. Now, there's, there's lots of imagery of sheep and shepherds right through the whole Old Testament. And I, will give, I want to give you a little snippet of it because I think it's tying back into a lot of this. The king of Israel in the Old Testament, so you think in David and Solomon um, and, and all the kings, they were described in the Old Testament as, as many things. They were described as the son of God, yeah? But they're also described as the shepherd of Israel. Isn't that a cool name to give a king, to call them the shepherd of Israel, yeah? And there were lots of good shepherds and bad shepherds of Israel when you actually look through the account. In fact, when you get to the prophet Ezekiel, um, he's announcing judgment on God's people because the shepherds have been so bad for so long. I'll give you a little snippet of the language of how bad the shepherds, the, the, the kings of Israel, and also just the leaders of Israel have been. It, the, the prophet Ezekiel says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel. You, you only take care of yourselves. You feed and clothe yourselves, but you fail to look after the people, the flock. You have not strengthened the weak. You have not brought back the strays. You have not searched for the lost. And, and so the announcement is this from God himself. I'm against you, shepherds of Israel. I will remove you. I will rescue my flock. I am their shepherd. Yep. And in Ezekiel 34, God says in verse 16, I will shepherd the flock with justice. So you've got this imagery of shepherd going on for many hundreds of years among God's people. The king and the leaders were regarded as shepherds, but really they're just under shepherds because the real shepherd of God's people is God himself. Yeah. In fact, you'll know Psalm 23, won't you? One of the most famous psalms written by King David, who is himself um, the shepherd of Israel, and he would have understood that very clearly. And we're going to get to Psalm 23 in a minute. But notice how David starts that psalm. He, he, how does it say? He says, um, the Lord is my shepherd. So the shepherd of Israel acknowledges that the Lord, God, is actually the real shepherd. He's the shepherd of Israel, and I'm shepherding under him. And now here comes Jesus. The, the one who's really clearly, according to Mark's gospel, the, the son of God, the king, the Messiah, the Christ, showing himself, particularly in this incident of the feeding of the 5,000, to be the shepherd of Israel. Yeah, This is who he is. It's subtle, but it's here in Mark. Understand the loaves. Understand that Jesus has come to be their shepherd. Now, verse 34, um, what does he say there? When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he, here's how he decides to shepherd them. So he began teaching them many things. Jesus does two things here. He first, he teaches them. And secondly, he feeds them bread which is to shepherd them in two ways, spiritually and physically. The first thing he does is give them a spiritual feed as their shepherd. And the second thing he does is give them a physical feed as their shepherd. 
Now, he begins to teach. We don't get told exactly what he teaches them in that moment, but I think John's gospel actually gives us the detail of what that is. And if you've read John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, you know, you get the language of Jesus saying to them, um, you know, I'm the bread of life. Um, Don't work for food that spoils, work for the food that endures for eternal life. Come and believe in me and you will never be hungry again. You know, Jesus has got a lot to teach them in that moment using the imagery of bread. So the first he teaches them, which is a spiritual feeding. This is what the shepherd does. And secondly, he gives them a physical feeding um, to illustrate that he really is the shepherd of Israel, the provider and the protector. Let's look at the details of how he actually feeds them. You can see it there in verse 35. By this time, it was late in the day. Um, The disciples came to him. It's a remote place. I won't read all the details here because we've read it just a minute ago. But basically, there's a dilemma. There's a hungry flock of people. There's thousands of them. And there's no food. And and, and Jesus' disciples come to him and share with him the problem. Uh, There's uh, thousands of people here and they're really hungry and there's no food. Um, Should we send them away to go and get some food and buy their own food? And then Jesus says to them, basically, why don't you feed them to the disciples? In other words, can you be their shepherd? And they are just confused by that. They're like, what do you mean? It would take half a year's wages to, get, to, to buy enough food to give everyone a bit of bread. And which the answer is, no, no, we can't feed them. And Jesus says, well, what can you find? What, what have we got to work with here? And they go out there and they find what? They find some kid's lunchbox, you know, a boy brings forward five little loaves of bread and two pieces of fish. And, and they come to Jesus, they go, well, here's what we've got, five loaves and two fish, but there's thousands of people here. And then Jesus says, well, effectively, I'm going to shepherd my people. I'm going to feed them. And then, and then he does the miracle. Look at verse 39. Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. What do you reckon? Is that a little symbol of, of, of Jesus being the shepherd that leads his sheep into the pasture where they can feed? I mean, what do you think of when you think of this area of, you know, the world? You know, it's typically just desert, rocky places, the odd olive tree popping up. You don't picture much green grass, but here's Jesus. He gets these thousands of people to sit down on green grass. I think that, I think that is symbolic. I think it's there deliberately for it, to direct us towards seeing, oh, he's, he's shepherding them. He's taking them to the place of pasture. This is what he's doing. It's subtle, but it's here. And, and, and he gets them to sit in groups of 50s and 100s. That's pretty organised. Like he, he, he actually kind of takes charge of what's happening here. They all sit down in groups. And then this bread and fish is brought forward and it's multiplied among the people so that everyone gets to eat, everyone is full, and there are 12 baskets full left over. Again, that's definitely symbolic, 12 baskets full, likely symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples. Either way, it's the whole number. Jesus is able to completely feed his people and provide for his people. He's able to do it in abundance. Yeah, He's their shepherd. He's able to care for them. He's able to provide for them. He's able to protect them. Now, there's something else that's probably meant to be happening here for them with the loaves situation. 
Um, while Jesus is feeding them in this way, in the countryside like that, it's meant to remind them of something that's happened before. Now, if you're with us for this teaching series we did just before this one, Exodus, you'll know what they were meant to be reminded of, yeah? It happened a long time before, but the people are meant to think, hang on, I've seen this happen before, or I've heard of this happening before. It's meant to be a bit of a deja vu moment for this crowd here, that they've seen it before with their ancestors. Last time this happened, in a very similar fashion, a hungry crowd being fed miraculously bread like this, is, is the time when God, the powerful shepherd of Israel, came to rescue his flock from the dangers of Egypt and bring them out into the pastures of the wilderness where they could worship him. And, and I call the pastures of the wilderness um, I call the wilderness pastures like the remote place there because when Jesus brings them out into this place, or sorry, when they're brought out by Moses or under God's hand into the wilderness, they're fed every day by their shepherd in the wilderness. And so God's people get bread from heaven, manna, every day. They wake up and there's enough there just for that day. And they're to trust that their shepherd will provide for them every day just enough. The only day they get to collect more than one day's worth is the day before the Sabbath because there's no collecting on the Sabbath. There's just rest. But God provides for them day after day in the wilderness with the manna and he's teaching them to trust him and depend on him. He is reliable when I'm in your presence. You're going to be okay. I can rescue you. I will sustain you. You can depend on me. I'm your shepherd. And now here's Jesus doing a very similar miracle with loaves, providing for hungry people. They're meant to see this and make the connection. They're meant to see Jesus and go, oh, this is the shepherd of Israel, the big one, the ultimate one, who's able to feed his people and protect his people. They're meant to understand and accept and trust who Jesus is, but the disciples are not doing that. Yeah? I mean, there's an indication in the walking on the water moment where Jesus, when he first steps in the boat and he says to them, did you catch this? He says, take courage, it is I. And when he says I there, that's the word ego, Amy, which is the I am word, which, which Jesus uses so that everyone would remember when God used that back in the time of the Exodus to reveal who he was. God says, I am who I am. And here's Jesus using that same language. I'm, I'm God. Yeah, I'm the shepherd. And I'm now among you to protect you in the ultimate way and feed you in the ultimate way. It's all being fulfilled in my ministry here among you. Now, it's subtle here in the book of Mark. But when you go to John's gospel, Jesus says it explicitly, doesn't he? He says, yeah, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. He says it in John chapter 10. Um, if you want to check out language about his shepherdry. If this is true, if what we're meant to understand, if what the disciples were meant to understand about the loaves is that Jesus is their shepherd, the shepherd of Israel who can protect and provide like no one else, then, then this is who Jesus is for us also. 
And if that's the case, then it's important for us to ask the question, um, what, what does it mean for us to live with Jesus as our shepherd? Yeah? Do you see him as your shepherd? Do, do, you, do, you, do you trust that in his presence you're safe and secure and you'll be provided for? Because that's the concept of a shepherd. In fact, to kind of reflect on this, and I'll, and I'll finish on this, I do want to reflect on Psalm 23, which is one of the places I was thinking, do we do John? This morning I tried to do John 10 and Psalm 23. I just, it was just too much. So I'm just going to do Psalm 23 tonight because I think it's, it's, it's got the picture of what it means to have God as your shepherd. And we're thinking about what it means to have Jesus, God the Son, as our shepherd and, and, and what it means to be a sheep and be shepherded by him. Can we spend... Can we come and wrap up this evening by reflecting on that together? And, and I do want to start off by saying this requires humility. It, it requires softening your heart towards God because to have him as shepherd means you need to acknowledge you are a sheep and sheep are, to put it nicely, yeah, in great need of being shepherding. Sheep can try to shepherd themselves. It never goes well. Have you seen that um, video that's often used as a meme where there's a sheep and it's caught in a ditch, a deep, dirty, muddy ditch, and there's a fellow there trying to rescue the sheep and, you, you, you know, you're really keen to... You, maybe you've seen it with some... I love, I love my memes. I go down that... Do you ever get sucked into the meme world or the real world? Well, anyway, it happens to me, um, you know, once every six months or something like that. Um, this guy's leaning in and he's straining to get this sheep out and you're hoping that he does because if the sheep stays there, the sheep's dead. And he's reaching into this ditch and he's wrestling and he finally gets this sheep out, reefs it out, and you're just so happy to see this sheep land on its feet and start bouncing around, happy as to be out of the ditch and the thing runs around the back of him and it does this big arc all the way around him and jumps straight back in the ditch again. It's really tragic. And usually the, the quote that's on the bottom of it is um, um, what I actually do every time Jesus rescues me from my sin or something like that. It's like, this, this is what sheep are like. It's humbling to consider yourself to be a sheep. Um, but if this is who we are, we are in desperate need of a shepherd. We need to humble ourselves, accept Jesus as a shepherd and position ourselves before him to be shepherded. Yeah? So a little bit of reflection on Psalm 23. Um, and this is like, you know, from the greatest, most powerful leader of God's people, David, who would have had all the reason in the world to be proud about his own leadership, his own shepherding of God's people. But here he talks about the Lord as his shepherd. So we're just, we're, I've got a couple of slides. We'll go through them one at a time if we can. Here we go, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Just there for a minute. I lack nothing. If you've got Jesus as your shepherd, you lack nothing. We live in a world that continually tries to communicate and get you to feel like there's much that you lack and to spend your money and your attention on getting everything you lack. But if you've got Jesus, apparently you lack nothing. Yeah, he's able to completely provide for you. In fact, if you have him as your shepherd, you've got everything you need for contentment and satisfaction. You lack nothing. Yeah? Look at his provision. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Isn't that just beautiful imagery? 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. Green pastures, if you're a sheep, that's where you want to be. Munch away, you know. And to lie down, you, you only do that when you feel very safe. Yep. You're not on guard, wondering about a wolf taking you down. No, no, you, you, you're safe in the presence of your shepherd so you can lie down and you can eat. Um, and he leads me beside quiet waters. Again, the concept of water being quiet is, is safety. You're in safe hands with Jesus. He's able to provide for you and give you everything you need. Yeah, he's the ultimate provider. Now, j- just on this, this is not a promise that if you have Jesus as your shepherd, nothing bad will ever happen to you. Yep. Think John the Baptist. <laughs> if you read just earlier in the chapter, he loses his head. He had Jesus as his shepherd. Doesn't mean nothing bad is going to happen to you. It's a promise that Jesus knows exactly what you really need and is completely able to provide for you. Yeah? You can entrust yourself to Jesus as your shepherd. He, he knows how to provide for you. Yeah? And actually, when you think about the provision that Jesus brings and the protection that he brings, um, there's indication that it's spiritual. See verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures like I was... He refreshes my soul. He restores my soul. The provision that your shepherd Jesus has for you is in regards to your soul primarily. He's able to provide many physical things. He's able to change situations. But what he's aiming to shepherd you in is in regards to your soul. In fact, you get it in 1 Peter, don't you? You know that language in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25 where he is described as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He's the shepherd of your soul. He's able to protect your soul and provide for your soul, your spirit, so that you can know deep security and protection, so that you can know assurance and safety in Christ Jesus. The ultimate way, of course, that your shepherd provides protection for your soul is that he as a shepherd lays down his life for you. This is the language that Jesus uses in John chapter 10. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. He puts his life on the line to save your soul. He lays down his life to take upon himself the danger. He takes his, your sin upon him, dies with it and deals with it to, to protect you from your own sin. That's what your shepherd does. What incredible provision. What incredible protection. And he guides you. Look at the rest of verse 3 there. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Later in chapter 4, later in verse 4, it talks about um, how your rod and your staff um, comfort me. You know, the, the picture of a shepherd guiding his sheep, he's either out in front or he's behind them. There's different images that come to mind. But often the ancient shepherd has in his hand a staff or a, or a crook. Can you picture it? And it's got a big hook on the end. And the idea is when any one of the particular sheep decides to wander off and we're prone to wander, the shepherd will actually go after that sheep and actually just either tap him and say, get back in there. Or if he's intent on running away, the shepherd can chase the sheep down and with the hook, wrap it around the neck of the sheep and reef him back to safety. Because a sheep on his own wandering is vulnerable. 
And, and, and here David is reflecting on the Lord being his shepherd and saying, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, there's discomfort in God guiding you and directing you. There's discomfort in God disciplining you, disciplining you and using his rod to keep you with his people and with him. But there's ultimate comfort in it that he's doing it for your safety. Do you, do you feel your shepherds tapping and hooking from time to time? There's discomfort in that, but feel the comfort of knowing he's got you. And you're safe in his presence. You know, you know, we sing that song, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I often can't sing those words because they just hit me and I choke up. Um, prone to wander, Lord, um, Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to like leave the God I love. Man, as a dumb sheep, I feel that. And I'm grateful for his shepherding. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Bind it for thy courts above. That is beautiful, isn't it? Let, let's write more songs with that kind of rich depth in them if we can. This is gold. What a good shepherd we have to guide us. Interestingly enough, I'll get you to go back that one slide. <clears throat> he guides me along right paths for whose sake? For his name's sake. Jesus is going to shepherd you for your sake. It is good for you to go along right paths. It is for your sake. It's for your safety. It's for, it's for the goodness of your life. But he is ultimately going to guide you for his name's sake. Because it's important for his glory to be known. And his, the name of him as shepherd of his people to be known. Because that's who he is. And so what he does with us is more than just for us. Ultimately, what God is doing is bringing you into his people and then keeping you with his people is for his name's sake. God's got a plan for the universe, which involves pulling a people together. And the church is actually at the very heart of God's plan for salvation for the whole universe. It's for his name's sake that he's gathering us and keeping us. There's something bigger going on in your life than just for you. God's got a big plan. He's going to bring glory to himself with what he's doing with us. So stay in. We'll go to that next slide. Look at verse 4. Jeez, you can spend some time in Psalm 23. Little funny story. Um, Aaron, who gave birth to little Psalm three weeks ago, reckons, I find this hard to believe, she reckons during the labour to calm herself down, she was reading Psalm 23 and reciting it? Aren't you just meant to scream and go crazy in the middle of labour? But no, no, she was, how gold's that? Psalm 23 in the midst of labour. Actually, this is the kind of psalm you want to be reading when you're in hectic scenarios. How cool is that? Anyway, this is what she read. Um, verse 4, even, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. Some of you guys are right now are walking into a dark valley and, and, and you're afraid you're despairing, like the disciples were afraid when they found themselves in this distressing situation. But here's the thing. Your shepherd does not promise that there won't be dark valleys, but he does promise that he'll be with you in the valley, yes? So that you do not need to fear where it's going. 
It's normal to fear hardship on a level, but when your shepherd is with you in the valley, you don't need to fear evil. Yeah? His ultimate provision for you is his presence with you. Look, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your shepherd is with you. Whether you're heading into one right now or whether it's next week. There's lots of dark valleys in life. He's not going to leave you. And the, and the one thing you can have assurance of is that he's with you in it. And the one thing that will make more difference than anything else is to know his presence in it. His ability to pull you out of it, but his willingness to come into it with you and stay with you. He's your shepherd. It's beautiful, isn't it? Final thing. Final verse. Abundance, blessing. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This is like abundant blessing. Again, not a promise that bad things won't happen. We just talked about the valley. But God is able to bless you. And in fact, if there is gifts and abundance that has come for you, it's because your shepherd is doing this. He's actually bringing that blessing to you. Acknowledge him, love him, be grateful to him. Look at this. This is the ultimate blessing. Verse 6. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. There's the ultimate blessing you need to be after in your life is to just have his love follow you all the days of your life. His goodness be with you all the days of your life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here's the big thing. King David, the shepherd of Israel, wants more than anything else. He just wants to dwell in the presence of the shepherd of Israel all the days of his life and into the next life. This is our shepherd. This is what's on offer for us. Will you let him shepherd you? Will you walk with him humbly? Will you learn to know him and love him as your good shepherd? Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for what Jesus did and said, but ultimately we thank you that he is God among us as our shepherd to come and rescue us in the ultimate way and protect us from the curse of sin and provide for us in the way we ultimately need with our souls, with our spirits. I pray, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you, accept your leadership as our shepherd and know the security and safety of being under your care. We love you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. Please shepherd us, Jesus. Amen.